Coffee Carmen Connection is about being human. It's about you choosing to prioritize your well-being, putting the time in to strengthen your resilience to adversity, and being part of a community that holds you accountable and offers support when the going gets tough. Our podcasts bring expert insight and real-life experiences together for you to enjoy and learn what it is that makes us human and how to work with it. Good morning, Leisha. Thank you so much for joining me today on this very cold morning. I'm really grateful to have you here and our pre-conversations suggest that this is going to be a lot of fun for me. So thank you. I wonder if you want to introduce yourself to everybody. Thank you, Sarah. It's really, really lovely to be here. So I am a clinical psychologist. I have been doing that work for, gosh, roughly about 12, 13, 14 years. I have learned so much about the human condition from my wonderful, wonderful patients, my clients. And I think I've also learned a, learned a great deal about myself in that journey. And the topic that we're talking about today is very dear to my heart because I see so much of it around me. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Absolutely. And the topic is also very dear to my heart, mostly because I live on the edge. And the topic is burnout, like everything burnout related. And I want to start by telling you an interesting anecdote. I was doing a webinar with somebody I've done lots of uh, webinars with, and the topic was burnout. And she asked me a question and she said to me, Sarah, how do you know when you're approaching burnout? What are the signals? And this was epiphanous for me, if that's even a word. I thought about it. And actually, I only know when I'm retreating from burnout because mm-hmm. I live in that in that little zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the, the thing that always happens first is my husband says to me, you're laughing more. I love it when relaxed Sarah comes. Wow. And I think that's incredible and also not entirely healthy. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what what do you what what's your sort of perception as a clinical psychologist of of burnout how we get there and what what actually is it? Right. Well, you know I've heard it described in different ways. I've heard it described by Judy Clippen, who's written quite extensively on it. Um, And she says, burnout is the result of doing too many of the wrong things, which I thought was quite an interesting definition. And I I think sometimes burnout is about doing, getting caught up in doing a lot of the things that are driven by the words should ought, must, and not perhaps always driven by the word want. I think burnout is something that burns up more energy than we get back. And if we're losing energy rather than generating energy, or at the very least breaking even, I think we will get burnout. For me, one of the ways that I recognize burnout in myself is there's a feeling. There's a, I start to disconnect. I start to not really enjoy what I'm doing anymore. And that's, that's very, that's not me because I, I love my work. 
I feel so blessed to have a lovely home, but it's things where I, the things that ordinarily would give me a sense of enlivenment, I just feel I don't really care. Wow. And that's an eerie feeling. Yeah, that, yeah, it is. And actually, if for me, the should, must, ought to voice is, is always there. And I had a bit of a thing yesterday, it was Sunday. I was so busy cleaning and spring cleaning and making sure everything was just perfect. And I had this moment where I was, I should be playing with the kids. I should be doing the Lego set that they just got. I should be doing all of that. And then, and this is, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. This is like not the place to air what a terrible mother I am, but I don't want to. I want to clean. So that was me. Yeah. I was going with what I wanted to do and not with what I should be doing. Define both, I know. Um, and, And to me, that gives me high anxiety and ultimately leads to burnout when I feel like I'm going with my want rather than my should. Yes, yes. You know, it's it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I started to think about is, you know, not everybody gets burnout. So who's at risk? And then I thought, is it a certain kind of person? And so I started looking into some of the literature and at the risk of overdisclosure, I am somebody who... I have very high standards. Um, I like doing things just so. And when I started reading up on, you know, what kinds of people are most at risk, it's not a surprise. It is the perfectionists. It's the people who often have um, quite unrelenting standards, who perhaps judge themselves and sometimes judge others without mercy. They're people who need order. They're people who love structure. Um, and all of those are wonderful things. So I'm not saying that those are those are negative attributes, but I think that there's an edge. And I think here's the, here's the tricky thing is there's a borderline between negotiating that territory where one is in that zone of it. And I know what I'm like when it comes to a cupboard and packing it. Don't get in my way. Get out of my way. I want it done. I'm lining up the sauce bottles. And, and it gives me, it does actually give me a great deal of satisfaction. But I think, as I say, I think sometimes, it's interesting your husband said about the laughter. That's one of the things where it becomes so driven and so exacting. And it's often individuals like that that are, that are at higher risk of burnout. So you've just described me. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> which is fabulous. Um, I was like a, a blue-ass fly yesterday around my house, absolutely cleaning everything. I cleaned all the bookcases out. I put a load of books for charity. I went through all of the kids' clothes, rearranged their uh, wardrobes, uh, everything. And what I found was I felt great when I went to sit in the lounge and we put on a film and poured myself a glass of wine and was like, oh, yeah, this is great. And I couldn't sit because I knew I still hadn't done the office or the conservatory. And I knew that I still needed to hoover Natalie's bedroom. And I knew that I hadn't actually unpacked some stuff in my room. And 
And I just, I sat there almost rocking, trying desperately to involve myself in this film because it's almost like that, and this sounds insane, but I just, I hadn't finished. You had pulled me away from my task when I hadn't finished and feel complete. And for me, that's that's another, talking about that territory, learning to negotiate that territory and to be able to actually say enough is enough there's another day tomorrow is something I find really difficult when I'm in that zone of focus or or whatever it might be and you add that to to trying to focus in that zone on three different things at the same time and you end up I don't know chasing your tail and being incredibly inefficient. I think for me where it gets interesting and important is is perhaps to sort of understand what's driving that. So what is underneath all of that? And I, I, you know, what you describe about yourself, Sarah, is certainly something that resonates with me. So I've always had a thing in my life, once I'm done for the day, and by done for the day, I mean, maybe I've had my last consultation. But then there's a period of admin. And I actually feel a kind of rising urgency in myself. And my family know, don't talk to her. Don't go near her. Leave me. Let me do my half an hour. And I sometimes, I, I, it's, it's a bizarre sort of sensation. I feel like there's a tumor growing on my brain, this pressure. I've got to get this done. I've got to. I cannot let go and release. I've just got to close the day. And, you know, I've sort of had to, I've sort of sat with myself and I thought, why, what what is that? And I know what it is for me. It's anxiety. And that's what I mean by beginning to sort of, in a way, understand, you know, there's a, there are often beliefs, there are fears, there are patterns of thinking that drive this. Not all of them are bad. But sometimes I think some of those patterns and belief systems, et cetera, are not always helpful because, again, I think they sometimes come with a cost. So what if I've got someone running into my room saying, oh, mommy, you know, I come and have a look. I want you to come and see this X, Y, Z. And I'm I'm just not in that place. I, in a way, can't abandon myself to that moment. And right there, I've missed a moment of meeting, a moment of potential joy. And, and I'm not there. And then I feel sad. You know what? That is so, what you've just said there is so, resonates so well with me because you're right, because my tumour is in my tummy and I can feel my tummy getting more and more knotted. Um, and it's this must get this done or something terrible is going to happen. Mainly, I'm going to forget what I'm doing and then it will never happen because my brain is like a sieve sometimes. But actually, it's almost a chicken and an egg thing. The more the closer to burnout I'm operating on a daily basis, the more intense that anxiety is and the less chance I've got of being able to go, actually, guys, I'm out. And that's that. what's interesting is, actually, I've been quite relaxed the last few days. So I was interested as to why last night I had this ridiculous urge to, to keep, keep cleaning. And you've just said something else there that I wanted to share with you. So last night I got into bed and my five-year-old, who should have been asleep, came and crept into bed with me. And my initial reaction was, oh, why are you not asleep? But I held it and he came and he snuggled up to me and he said the weirdest thing ever, but it was lovely. He said, mummy, I'm glad I was born in your tummy. <laughs> oh, How lovely is that? And I, I was so glad because that 
moment I didn't miss because I was able to, it was literally on the tip of my tongue. Why are you still awake? Nope, nope, just it's fine. You haven't been there today. You've been cleaning. So just have a moment. And then he came and cuddled up and said, I'm glad I was born in your tummy. And and those those things, why is it when you think of Pavlov's dog theory and 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 the the positive reinforcement of that moment, mm-hmm. why is it that that doesn't win out over the anxiety? Because mm-hmm. why? Well, I think I think there might be many theories on that, but one certainly that resonates for me is, is again, something about fear. And fear, you know, the, the way the brain is designed, fear or anxiety, however you want to put it, um, that, that feeling of, I haven't got time for the positive. I have to focus on what is it that that gives me, uh, what what is presenting me with a, a sense of maybe threat is too big a word, but you know if you're driven, um, there's something about this need for for order or having it just so, or as you say, the worry about am I going to forget? Am I because my brain is like a sieve? Well. Again, there'll be something underneath that. Well, what if you do forget? And often what's cooking around there is something around, if I don't remember, something awful is going to happen, and then it's going to be my fault. That's one of the unconscious beliefs that might drive the kind of compulsion to keep things going. And the way the brain is set up is it's the survival system. We pay more attention to things that can go wrong than things that are going right, because things that are going right often don't hold as much threat for us. So I think that there is something biological in our makeup. But of course, we have got an amazing prefrontal cortex, which is the smart part of the brain that sits in the front of our heads. And we can cultivate, I think, a consciousness to being able to, when those moments come, like with your little boy, that I think that there's something wonderful that can happen there. When he says what he says, that you as the receiver or the beneficiary, I think translating that into your body, that it's not just an emotional sense of, oh, what a beautiful thing to say, but that actually one feels a softening in your body, that there's a there's a kind of whole embracing of allowing that moment of pure beauty and pure connection in. And on that level, I think one can build a little bit more neural connectivity to beginning to recognize, acknowledge, and truly take in the many, many positive things that happen in our days that we often don't even notice. Do you know, that's you're absolutely right. I did a, a, another webinar with Zoe, our wellbeing consultant, for the Chartered Institute of Insurance, and we were talking about the negativity bias, yep. which is what you're essentially talking about. And because we are designed to focus on the negative, it has to be a really conscious, really full body effort, daily, consistent effort at, at, at finding the positive. And sometimes I think from somebody that tries very hard to do this, so I've got my gratitude journal on my phone and I take pictures as I walk to work and upload it and, and, and things like with Ollie last night, I try really hard to think about it and talk about it. 
past the event just to try and remember and, you know, reinforce that moment. But I'll be great for three weeks and then I'll forget for three weeks and I'll be great for three weeks and then I'll forget for three months. And and sometimes I find that additional to-do, I should be doing my gratitude journal, is another thing. And I suppose that's that's really where Coffee Calm Connections come out of. What can we do that doesn't feel like a, a another to-do that is only short bursts every day mm-hmm. that just help you to really understand what's going on so that you want to take these little moments? And that short, sharp, every single day is, I think, I think is what helps. Do you agree? I completely agree. And I think that these practices of journaling or, you know, doing 20 minutes mindfulness meditation, whatever it is, I think they are amazing practices. And I think they are valuable practices. But I think that I don't think that they are the be all and the end all. So I am learning that I can make a difference when I integrate three systems. And that is the system of thought or cognitive, the system of emotion or feeling, and the system of of body. And when, for example, if I go for a walk, it's just the tuning in on all three levels to the environment, that moment of smelling the 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 dew on on the grass of really that's the body of really tuning in using the senses and I'm talking 30 seconds 30 seconds of integrating the three systems and you've made a difference to your nervous system remarkably the vagus nerve it's a very big nerve one of the most significant nerves in the body starts at the base of the spine spreads out branches out comes over the shoulders, over the heart, down into the stomach. And that nerve, all these many branches, is so sensitive to a change in the environment. And and this is what I mean by really bringing together all three of the systems. If you only do it on a head level, I don't think it's enough. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the integrating of those three fundamental human systems of thought emotion and body and that makes a difference it's harder to do than you would think though isn't it I tried on my walk to work this morning and it was dark and it was actually really peaceful and there was hardly anybody about that might be something to do with the fact it's a bank holiday and it was half past six in the morning but you know (laughs) and I tried really hard to listen to the birds like there was ice underfoot and I could feel it and I and I was trying, but it's almost like I was I was managing it on one system and then I'd flit off and then the other system and flit off. And one of the things I did notice um, was that my breathing was very shallow. Mm-hmm. And I was I'd noticed that I wasn't taking full or exhaling fully. And that was, you know, that was beneficial in itself. Uh, but when I tried to exhale fully, it made me feel like I was going to panic. So I carried on with my short breathing, but I noticed it. And that for me was step one, but it's quite difficult to do. Yes. And I think that's, again, that is cultivating a new practice. And I think we don't always realize the habits that we get into. And that's the thing with the habit. 
you know, when, when we first learned to ride a bicycle, it was hard. We had to think about every single element of that bicycle. But eventually, it's procedural memory. In other words, it's just an automated function of the body system. Nobody thinks about that anymore. It's the same thing with this. It starts as a little bit of a grind. But that moment, what you just described, that moment of you just putting a teeny space, a teeny pause between a habit and noticing the habit, you've already made a difference right there. I love Viktor Frankl's um, stimuli response. Oh, my goodness, I'm messing it up. You know what I'm trying to say? Yes. Stimulus response and the space in between is what exactly. you um, what, what you need. To, and it's, sometimes it's a split second. It's that split second between the child doing something and my reaction to yell and going, no, I'm yelling at you, not because I'm angry at you, but because actually I'm irritated by this. But that tiny, mm-hmm. tiny second sometimes gets a bit bigger and then sometimes it disappears altogether and you have to start again at the beginning. Exactly. And that's where I think uh, people, again, who are prone to burnout or people who I think care, you know, this is the thing. I think people who are prone to burnout. It's important to acknowledge that these are people who often deeply care about getting things right, around doing well, around being the best that they can possibly be. I think um, sometimes sometimes it's not about creating yet another demand, right? I'm supposed to do put, you know, 300 pauses in between a moment of when I'm about to yell. or And then it becomes, as you said earlier, it becomes another, another thing to get right. And I think that's totally contrary to the spirit of what one is trying to cultivate here. I think it's when you can, when you do, wonderful. And when you don't, so what? Let it go. Mm. You've just said something again that's interesting. Another epiphany from my morning walk was, so maybe actually it wasn't all bad. Maybe uh, maybe it did uh, enlighten a few a few moments. So I mentioned to you earlier that I'm trying to do the John O'Groats, Land's End to John O'Groats 2021 virtual running challenge. So it's 874 miles from January through to December. And I was thinking about it on my walk to work. And I was thinking that's 16 miles a week for 52 weeks. That's roughly what it works out. What if I could do 20 miles a week? That would be four five four-mile runs. What if I could do 5K every day for a month? In fact, no, make it five miles every day for a month. Yes, that's what I'll do. And I'll tell you what else I should probably do. I should probably do it at six o'clock in the morning. And actually, I should do 31 days of yoga with Adrian because that will help the running. So all of a sudden, I'd found that rather than trying to do the one challenge, I'd added another 15 and I could feel that I was starting to panic. How am I going to manage that with working with the children? And I'll have to go at five o'clock instead of six o'clock because otherwise I'll take more time away from the kids. And and before I knew it, I'd got myself into a ridiculous anxiety panic over the fact that I was adding more goals. And I've got my neighbor has just done uh, 5K every day for uh, for this month. And it was him that, you know, I was thinking about and he, he inspired me. And I thought, Do you know, David's done this, but he hasn't put extra parameters. Mm. If he goes at six o'clock in the morning one day, one o'clock in the afternoon the other, and 10 o'clock at night the other, it's okay because there's just the one goal. So I like what you're saying there about the perfectionist and just trying to have everything so-so. 
I have a habit of overstructuring things, uh, which again leads to to anxiety and then Hmm. ultimately burnout. One of the things that we were talking about earlier offline, which I thought was really interesting, and you opened with it uh, on this podcast, was when burnout can be defined as doing too much of something that isn't good for you. Hmm. And I wanted to without sounding too preachy, given my my goals for for twenty twenty one define that i'm I'm thinking about alcohol, I'm thinking about sugar, I'm thinking about rubbish food, all of which I enjoy in too much quantity. Uh, but how does that impact mood and burnout? You know, I think one of the key ingredients in burnout is a sense of depletion and I know what that word is, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to the dictionary and just just get a definition of it. And I love the definition that I found. Depletion is to deprive of something essential to existence or potency. And I think that what happens when we start to feel depleted I think that's where we start to, there's this cumulative um, snowball effect of more exhaustion, more overwhelmed. We start to get more checked out. We feel we are running on empty and we keep running. We keep moving, often frantically cramming in more and more and more and not feeling better for it. And then we start taking shortcuts. And that's where we start with more caffeine, we start with more food, we start with more alcohol. We self-medicate. The signs are there. The signs are often there. And when I talk to people about burnout, they often say to me, we knew. You know, if we look back, we can see this was coming. And what did we do? We just pushed harder. And and I think this is the thing, you know, burnout, I, I will distinguish between burnout and depression in a moment, but they can actually look, they can look very similar because when you are chronically depleted of that something essential to existence, and this is the thing, I think everybody has to define what that is for them. I know for me, it's, I think that's that sense of, I think for me, it's the sense of joy. It's the sense of laughter. It's the sense of lightness. When I start getting so, so serious about everything, that's for me a warning sign that I'm moving towards depletion. And then I do think that people start in a way trying to self-soothe um, because there's different levels in consciousness. There's this ongoing pressure to keep doing whatever it is that we've set ourselves to do. And in your case, you know, that, that experience of the running is a wonderful thing. And you're doing that probably for a whole host of different reasons. But for you to have accomplished that will give you such, I imagine, an amazing sense of achievement. So it is a pathway to joy. But I think it's, some, it's something about the, the route and the journey that we, the, the, the way that we get there. And this is where I think we've got to be careful with how burnout or the road to burnout can also take us to depression. So burnout and depression can, in fact, look very similar. 
Both can manifest through changes in sleep, changes in eating patterns, through loss of interest in things that used to give us pleasure. Burnout can generate feelings of hopelessness, increased irritability. But again, I think to my mind, there are two key features in burnout. And one is when we've got there, because here's the thing, it's important to realize that Burnout, it's the train that has been traveling, but we've now hit burnout station. And so burnout is, it's a slow incremental increase in exhaustion. uh, And then the exhaustion starts to kick off other features of which one is feeling, as I said earlier, that we no longer like what we do. We might start to feel detached more and more detached from whatever it was that once gave us a sense of accomplishment and fulfillment, something that we really enjoyed. It might be your running. It might be your job. It might be your family. And we start to ask, is this it? So it's often accompanied by a sense of disillusionment. And so I think it's important for us to distinguish the nature of the exhaustion that helps discern whether this is burnout or whether this is depression. And Judy Klipkin, she she distinguishes, she says depression is a feeling of being tired of life, whereas burnout is a feeling of being tired from life. And by this she means it's how we live our lives, not life itself, that causes us to become burned out. And often in depression, We feel it is life itself that is contributing to the actual illness. Again, a way to distinguish burnout and depression is depression, for example, often involves suicidal thoughts. It's that experience of really just not wanting to be here anymore. It's that feeling of just make it stop. And I want everything to stop and I don't want to be here. Now, burnout, and this is why burnout is also dangerous, Burnout can progress us to that, but it's unusual that burnout starts like that. Wow, that's quite powerful. And um, that's quite a good analogy, I think, of how you would des- describe the difference. Can you just tell me, Judy Clipkin? Clipin? K-L-I-P-I-N. And have you got um, any, you said you'd written a few She's written a really lovely book. Um, She's written a book called Recover from Burnout. And again, here's the interesting thing. I think she's worked with a lot of people who have suffered from burnout. Here's the interesting thing. Burnout can affect everyone. It, It can affect housewives or house husbands. It can affect business people. It affects mothers. It affects CEOs, it affects police officers, teachers, members of the clergy, people in the caring profession. It can affect everyone. We are all potentially vulnerable to burnout. So, okay, here's a question for you. What would you suggest or what advice would you have for somebody that is feeling the effects of burnout what practical and we've touched on some of it today what practical and daily things would you start to do now if you're worried that you're you know on the the train 
Well, I think, again, I'm going to say something that's probably easier said than done, because I think one of the defining features of being on that train is that what we need to be doing first and foremost is to slow down. But of course, when we are on that train, part of it is there's a pressure and it's the pressure and it's building up and building up. And, you know, you, you'll notice that there are always the signs. Somebody just pops in to ask you a little question at your desk and you snap at them. It's that kind of irritability because you snap because you are feeling, again, there's more to do. That to-do list is ever growing. You've got to get that assignment in. So I think one of the key things to do is notice that and slow down because when burnout hits proper, one usually comes to a crashing halt and it can take months to generate. And, you know, for me, it's so sad when I've seen people who have spent years building a career that has taken money in terms of training and development, it's taken sacrifices. And then suddenly they get to a place and they think, they think, you know, maybe it's the job. I need to change job. Do you know what? Maybe I need to, I think I'm going to go and work in a donkey sanctuary. That's what I'm going to do. And that's, for me, that's very diagnostic. So I think the very first thing that you can do today is start to recognize that this is a road to a not a good place and you need to start addressing that. So that's the first thing. One of the things you said there about slowing down is is interesting because I think, and please tell me if you don't, um, if you slow down, if you take that few minutes every hour to do two-minute breathing or a walk around the block, you're actually much more effective and efficient. So that to-do list all of a sudden feels less because you've got more of that mental space. And may, and that's something that's helped me in rather than forcing myself to feel I need to slow down and take some things off my to-do list, slow down so that I can be more effective in what I'm doing. And um, I had a, an example about, uh, I don't know, about a month ago where I sat with my business partner, uh, who is also my dad, and we were trying to go through our to-do list. And we were both oh my goodness, how are we going to get this done this week? All right, you do this, I'll do this. But right now, brain has shut down. Let's go home and we'll get in early and tackle it. And we got in early and looked at the to-do list and we were both, okay, like, let's go. By lunchtime that day, we'd done it. And we were like, well, how did this feel so bad last night? And yet we've now completed it and completed it well. And it's just, it's that brain fog that tells you something, disillusionment, you're out of perspective, just take the time to bring the perspective back. Um, and one of the things that I've um, I've learned through some of the things I've been doing, which I really, really love is if you imagine a face and you've got the line here, you've got enough thinking space and enough emotional space to be balanced. If something happens and you go here, you're all emotion. And when you're running on that level of emotion, there's no thinking space. You will not be productive. You haven't got perspective. You cannot be logical or rational and achieve anything. Mm. If you are here, you are too much logical and <clears throat> 
you're not listening to the signals that your body is saying to say, slow down. This is not okay. I'm feeling under pressure. I've got anxiety. And I love that analogy. And I use it with my kids. We want you to be here. And I think you're here. What can we do to change that? And here or here, for me, take five minutes, walk around the block, have a shower, do five-minute meditation, read a book, whatever it might be, just take yourself out of the zone you're in and just maybe some, some space will come. I think that's absolutely correct. You know, there's that saying that we've all seen, keep calm and carry on. And I think that's exactly what you're speaking about. It's the, and the, and you, you put it so succinctly, it's bringing, it's integrating. It's not being overwhelmed by emotion. It's not being so logical that you're disconnected. But it's that, it's that integrating. And the irony is that if you are calmer, if you are quieter, you're absolutely more efficient. And so you're right. When they say keep calm and carry on, they're not saying keep calm and lie on the sofa the entire day. Carry on. They're saying you will get things done. But you you are going to be more efficient because you're bringing a sense of space to whatever it is that you're doing, and that's a qualitative difference. I think that is a wonderful, wonderful phrase, and is one that you will see through Coffee Calm Connections marketing because I think it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I might even have t-shirts made up. <laughs> <laughs> I really I found so much value in this, and one of uh, one of the things that really brings me joy really really brings me joy in these conversations and I genuinely believe that Coffee Calm and Connection is going to be um, as much my journey as anybody else that joins so I'm um, you know I'm learning a lot about me through these kind of conversations and half of me wants to go and learn psychology and, and uh, clinical psychology specifically so really really grateful for your time thank you very much. It has been such a joy and such a pleasure to be here, Sarah. And quite frankly, I think psychology is everywhere. And we all bring an understanding to psychology because we're all psychological beings. Let's celebrate that. Absolutely. With a, a non-alcoholic drink. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much, Leisha. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Your reviews, shares, and followership is incredibly valuable to us. If you'd like to know more about our work through Coffee, Calm, and Connection and how we can support you, please email us at hello at coffeecalmconnection.org or follow us on social media. Thank you.